Yeah. Welcome back to the Think Education podcast. Uh, I'm Chris Hill, joined as always by Judith Lammy, and indeed again joined by um, Dr. Vicky Lewis, friend of the show, who uh, Judith will reintroduce, I guess, um, given uh, that we've already had Vicky on, on once before. Um, so Judith, over to you to, I'm not quite sure how you're going to manage this one, but let's, let's see if there's, maybe you've unearthed some new information about Vicky since the last time we, we had her on uh, uh, that we didn't know, didn't learn last time. What I don't know about Vicky Lewis. Now that would be an interesting podcast. However, however, in the spirit of professionalism, and good planning that we always have, which underpins the <laughs> Education Podcast. Yeah. Uh, we're, de- we're delighted to that uh, Vicky, good friend of ours, is, is, is joining us again. And we said the last time that you were with us, uh, Vicky, that we wanted you to come back. And also that we were delighted you were working with the book with us and you're working with our next, um, on our next book with us as, as well. And indeed, we are good to, for, to our word and uh, you haven't been able to escape us. I feel you are yet again. Um, But the focus particularly for this uh, podcast is going to be around languages and that's particularly appropriate when it comes, I think, to Vicky joining us because, of course, Vicky's undergraduate degree was in in modern languages in German and French at Oxford. So so you're going to be wildly biased, I feel, Vicky, in particular when we're talking about this this uh, topic around uh, languages. But just to remind um, colleagues, I mean, many, many of you will, of course, know Vicky. She's been very well, she's very well known now um, on the uh, consultancy circuit as, a, as, as a, having been a, a consultant now for 10 years. It's, I think, I believe you had your 10-year celebration a little while ago. I did. Um, Vicky, <laughs> so congratulations uh, on that. And she's worked with many, many uh, higher education institutions institutions on their international strategy development over the years. Um, as we know, uh, and as I've just mentioned, you know, um, modern languages really un- underpins what she 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 did to, to begin with at the beginnings of her career. And I know she did a bit of freelance travel uh, writing before moving to uh, to the country that, well, any any good people within our sector will, of course, have worked in Wales. So she was at the University of Wales Lanta for uh, some time before then going to yet another one of our great nations, Scotland, uh, before then moving finally to, to Bournemouth University. So we're delighted again to, for you to, to join us, Vicky, and we're really grateful for your time. And as I say today, we are um, talking in particular about languages and uh, language education. And, um, and, you know, in many ways, this is also sparked by... Um, a post that you sent out on LinkedIn um, a little while ago. So we're really keen to talk to, to you about this. But I wonder whether you might start us off with some reflections on your own language learning journey. As I say, you, you started with your undergraduate degree in modern languages. You know, what, therefore, that, that personal journey is, is meant for you. Well, thank you, and d- delighted to be back on the podcast. Um, uh, I, I guess, I mean, I, you know, going back even before um, undergraduate studies, I mean, I did the classic kind of French pen friend thing where we visited each other regularly, and and um, I mean, really, probably right up to the age of eighteen, um, and. I also, I was very fortunate to be at a school that um, offered, if you did German 
A-level, it offered you the opportunity to spend a whole term at a German um, secondary school gymnasium. Um, and so at the age of 16, um, I headed off to Germany to live with a German family for a whole term. Um, and that was just an amazing experience. And, and I mean, it was just very what was very challenging because I was doing German, French and English A-levels was that I, well, I, I had to um, start doing sciences as well, because in Germany, the Arbitur is a much broader um, uh, uh, set of subjects so I had to go to go back to doing chemistry and things um, in German um, and um, then bizarrely also learning French in German um, through the medium of German so I think that was that was you wow. know, challenging but interesting and really really good for me um, I mean so, you know, socially and culturally as well as obviously linguistically um, and I then um, also spent some time in Germany um, before I went to university I took a year out um and um so that that was was brilliant um and I did the usual kind of you know standard undergraduate degree where it was, it was sort of mainly focused on literature really but they but you had to have a year abroad in the third year um and um, you know, being me, I decided I, I would apply to um, all sorts of exotic places. Um, so I wanted to become an English language assistant. My first choice was Martinique. My second choice was Quebec. Um, I didn't get either of those. Um, and I ended up um, in Alsace in France um, and spent a year as a language assistant there. Um, and I, I, I did before I before I. Um, when I was choosing my undergraduate subjects, I did toy with the idea of doing something completely different, like um, uh, Chinese and Russian, rather than sticking with, with what I knew um, in uh, German and French. I chickened out of that, and I often wonder what my career might have been and how it might have been different if I had made that decision to go down the Chinese and Russian route. Um, but I'm not entirely sure, yeah. Vicky, whether you say that you chickened out of something when you did a modern <laughs> languages degree in German and French. I mean, I had enough complexity doing an English degree somewhere, to be honest. So, you know, but yes, I suppose that the if you're interested in languages and at that time, you know, it was it was uh, it it was more commonplace to do something like German and French, I guess, wasn't it? Yeah. Than something like as you say, Russian and Chinese, which would have taken you in a slightly different direction, I suppose. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yes, I mean, and after, after I graduated, um, after a couple of years of this um, travel writing you mentioned, um, I spent two years um, living and working in Hamburg um, as a um, as a sort of research and administration assistant in a charitable foundation, um, which again was, you know, I was just sort of living and breathing German. Um, and um, I, I mean, I feel I feel really bad because my spoken German and French after being pretty good at that um, age um, has definitely deteriorated because I really haven't had the opportunity to use it as much as I would have liked. I was still fine with sort of um, reading and, and even writing, um, I think, is probably better than my my speaking. Um, but I think that's that's one of the the. <laughs> I, I would call it a disadvantage of um, English being such a widely spoken language um, is that uh, the default position in um, kind of business conversations and so on is to speak English. Yeah, and I suppose it's just that it's it's accessible everywhere now as well, isn't yeah. it? I guess yeah. when 
you know, when 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 we did placements abroad or or study abroad, and certainly many many years ago, you know, you there wasn't the internet, you know, there wasn't no. the, there were there was the television, but the television channels were the local channels that you that you had. Mm. So actually, um, you know, you would you would watch television or listen to the radio to help your language, wouldn't you? As opposed to now, where you can watch. You know, yeah, tel- English television, home, or yeah. spoken English television programs, either from home or from from other mm-hmm. English speaking places, can't you? But before maybe we get on to the international higher education part of it, maybe what that means to us now as we've as we come into these kind of careers, I'm, I'm interesting as well though, just just to touch upon what you mentioned there um, about what you did when you were at school too. That you know the fact that you had that opportunity when you were doing A levels to um, to spend a, a, a term abroad, you know, d- doing German, and I guess when when we were all sort of doing O levels or even pre that, you know, the the languages were certainly much more prevalent in schools, weren't they? I'm not necessarily saying that that it was excellent at that time, but, uh, but for most of us. You did have the opportunity to do French and/or German, certainly up until up until A levels, and mostly they started. They might not have started in in junior school or you know very young, but uh, but at least you had the opportunity to start at at that age, didn't you? And I suppose you know, and most of us certainly my, myself, you know, I I sort of stopped at the O level stage when it certainly came to French and German, but. Um, but probably still have got still have got some of that with me, you know. When I when I visit places, when I see things, I, I, the, the back of the, that bit of your brain that accesses, you know, languages will throw throw out these these words that I didn't even realise I still knew, but are obviously back back there kept hidden in many ways. But I guess it's not just about the um, about the language itself, is it? It's just about the other things that you learn. In learning about the language, but but just coming back then to that for the moment, though, I mean about about schools and school languages. It did certainly, you know, for me in the seventies, but you know, seventies and eighties, it was popular to have those languages at school, and that seems to have diminished somewhat over the years. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yes, I mean, I think. Um, I always go back to the um, 2004 um, International Education Strategy for the UK, uh, which was called Putting the World into World Class Education um, and had this lovely foreword by Charles Clark. Um, And um, one of the aims within that was um, to transform our capability to speak and use other languages, which sounds absolutely brilliant um, and kind of really quite unusual from a UK perspective to see that in a government strategy. Um, but it was so disappointing because the very same year the government um, uh, kind of stopped um, foreign languages being compulsory at, G- at GCSE. Um, and so I think in, I've got the data here, I think in 2002, 76% of pupils took a modern language GCSE. And by 2011, it was only 40%. Um, and I think it sort of rebounded a little bit, but it's still only in the 40%. And I think two out of three um, sec- state secondary schools only offer one GCSE like foreign language option, um, so it really has declined. Um, and 
Um, I mean, I just think, you know, it's, it's, it's a real shame. Um, I think, I mean, you know, it starts, it starts well before secondary school. I think at primary school, yeah. um, the teaching of foreign languages is so patchy that basically the secondary schools then have to sort of start from scratch again because everybody's mm. in a different stage um, and it sets people back. Whereas I think I, I started... Well, I think the young, well, basically, the younger you start, the more likely it is to a kind of stick in your brain and b sow the seeds that this is something fun and exciting to do, and it opens opens doors for you. Um, but I mean, I've, my um, son has just taken his GCSEs, and he was quite unusual in his school because he did both German and French, um, so he did two language GCSEs. And although I mean, he's not. He's not taking a language A level, but I think he does understand the value of learning a language. And um, I was, I, I was really, I was pleasantly surprised because we went to Turkey on holiday this summer, and um, every now and then, I, 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 I mean, he'd finished, he'd, he'd done his exams, so he had sort of what felt like a, um, you know, endless summer off. Um, and every now and then, I'd hear him chatting to himself in his room or even in the you know, bathroom or whatever, and, and, and I, I quizzed him about it, and he said that he'd been um, learning Turkish on Duolingo, um, and apparently he'd started using Duolingo to help with French revision for his GCSE, and he just thought, oh, well, we're going to Turkey, I'll, I'll learn a few phrases of Turkish, and, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't, he didn't do much, but it was enough for him to, you know, be confident enough to use some phrases when he was out there. And I thought, well, it, you know, if he hadn't done any language GCSEs, it probably wouldn't have occurred to him to do that. And and I was quizzing him also about the, the you know, the kind of difference between school lessons in a subject and um, using a platform like Duolingo to teach yourself. And he said, well, I th you know, that he thinks that there's a place for both. Um, that, you know, you do need that kind of face-to-face -face interaction with the teacher and that that's really valuable. But I think they didn't really focus on speaking very much. It was very much teaching to the exam in his school. Um, and with Duolingo um, and presumably all, all sorts of other platforms, it's, it's, turned, it's more interesting and exciting because it's turned into a game. Um, and you you know you have your streak. You don't want to lose your streak, so you've got to do it every day. And there are incentives and threats and things. Um, and so um, you know it's it's actually quite fun. <laughs> I'm yes, uh, I'm yeah. currently using it to learn German. Um, Great. So and uh, my uh, <laughs> is it threatening you? <laughs> um, I, I do get daily emails saying don't lose your streak. Um, it's interesting because so. Um, I learned, I started high school in England and we learned German. And then I moved to Spain at the end of the first term and learned Spanish and French. And um, obviously Spanish, because you're in the country, even though it was an English school or international school, but English was the main language. Um, my Spanish was much better than my French because French was being taught. I was only using it in the classroom and then I was, I mean, homework. And then I was, you know, forgetting about it. And, and now trying to learn, trying to learn German, um, my daughter, who's also learning German at school, says, well, you don't really learn useful German because who needs to know that you've got three kilos of potatoes in your suitcase? So no, it's a valid point. I'm not sure when that will come up um, in, in day to day. Uh, uh, but yeah, so it's interesting, though, but I think what you're saying, it's, it's sort of a lot of it, I think, is the philosophy of what we think about language, because my daughter goes to school here in Dubai and it's an international school. 
Um, she learns German, German and French are kind of the predominant um, European languages that, that are offered. But all children from kindergarten age upwards learn Arabic. Uh, so mm. if, you are, if you are a child with an Arabic passport, you go into the Arabic A-stream, which also includes uh, Islamic values uh, and a certain sort of cultural... Um, and if you are a non-Arab um, passport holder, you go into Arabic B, which is predominantly language. But she does something like four hours a week in Arabic. From, and she was doing that from the age of sort of five and six upwards in school. And I think it's, it's really interesting in, in a couple of ways because, one, it's, as you say, the earlier you are with languages, the, the better it sticks. I mean, learning a language at this age or my age is... I think I have the, the ability from having learned others, but it is, it is much harder. Not being there makes it even harder. So, but also it's the fact that, you know, if you're a, a kid going to school in an Arab-speaking country, having access to an awareness of the type of language, a bit of the culture, a bit of the context, um, I think is enormously valuable. Um, it's something that when I was based in Malaysia, they, the, the ministry started to introduce these um, sort of Malaysian culture, Islamic value type add-on modules, which were seen as a, oh man, really do we have, how are we going to fit this in curriculum? How is this going to work? How are we going to teach it, etc. And yet, if you're in T&E or internationalization or even just traveling, wouldn't it be a good idea to have some increased understanding or awareness at least, if not understanding, of the place in which you are situated? Um, not that you're going to convert or not that you're going to be fluent or not that you're going to be you know, an expert, but just you know, using language as that vehicle to being able to say hello to people in the street or being able to say thank you, even if, if people predominantly switch to English because they see, they see you as an English speaker and maybe they want to practice. But, you know, I, so I, I, really, I really like that about the philosophy of um, the way my daughter's schooling is going. And I, I think as I was growing up, language was this add-on. It wasn't uh, an mm. essential. It was, and sometimes it's an add-on where you've only got to get through to, to the age of 14 or 15. And then you know what? You never have to do it again. As if, as if that's the way the world works. You're done. done that's it. Bit. You've got English. You're fine. And you think, okay, but I mean, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting way of thinking about education, you know, philosophy. Yeah, I was wondering, I was going to ask you, Chris, about that, because you've, you know, you, you, you've taught in many countries, so it's interesting to hear, you know, what, ta- and, and lived there, I think, lived there for, for, for periods of time, and, you know, hearing what they might be doing in Malaysia, and particularly hearing what they, they're doing in Dubai, you know, and, um, and I, and I, and it, it is, a, it is a shame, isn't it, that only so many countries that, um, that that notion of what you might learn through learning a language, which isn't just about learning the language, yeah, it's um, sort of been lost, hasn't it? And, and as you said, Vicky, that um, that just interest that might be sparked in learning something when you're long, younger, that seed's been planted, and mm-hmm. you know, and then you don't have any of all of the barriers that you have when you're older, do you? Making sure that you've got your right participant in certain places because that's really, <laughs> really going to be important. But actually, when you go when you go out on the street and have a chat with somebody, you know, in the middle of France or the middle of Germany or the middle of wherever, it really doesn't matter at all. No. Um, no. And and so there's that notion of what languages are for. Aren't there? But I suppose what they what they do for us when we're younger and opening our eyes to different countries and different cultures, because often as well, a culture is shaped by its language and vice versa, isn't it? I mean, that's probably a chicken and egg conversation going on there. But 
you know, you can often understand more about a country when you understand about its language, can't you? Because of how it's how it's crafted, how it's taught, mm. and how it's delivered. Yeah. I think. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think. Um, I mean, you mentioned the the LinkedIn post that I put out a couple of months ago, and um, that was. It was sparked by um, some lovely feedback I had from a consultancy client saying something along the lines of, um, you, you, had, you had us worked out within days. It was amazing how quickly you became fluent in our lingo. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, interesting that it's phrased like that. And I wonder if the fact that I have, you know, learned languages in the past makes, you know, has, has given me skills that I apply in my work that I'm kind of, you know, haven't really thought about. So... I put out this post, um, you know, asking, um, you know, those who um, have either studied languages or are fluent in, in multiple languages to sort of feedback on um, the skills that they think that they have developed, that they apply in their working lives as a result of having learned languages. And I got a phenomenal response from people. I was really surprised. Um, I mean, I guess there are a lot of people in our sector, in my network, who who are multilingual or have studied languages. Um, but, I mean, there were all sorts of things that came out, um, you know, the usual stuff about, you know, being able to see things from another person's perspective um, and being um, more tolerant and, um, you know, and, and all that side of stuff. But also some quite kind of specific skills around things like analysis, analytical skills um, and being able to problem solve and, and think of alternative ways of doing things because, you know, if you can't say things in one way, um, you have to think on your feet about how else you're going to say it if you can't think of the words. Um, things like um, nonverbal cues, picking up on nonverbal cues, um, as well as what people are actually saying, what's, what's between the lines, what's their body language saying. Um, patience and empathy. Obviously, you know, if you've been in the position of, um, really struggling to find a word or communicate, you're much more patient and empathetic towards somebody else who might be in that position. Um, appreciation of nuance um, mm. and um, kind of uh, comfort with ambiguity, um, being willing to kind of fail and get up and try again, um, being um, willing to kind of push yourself outside your comfort zone. Um what else did they come back with? I mean, I think, yeah, sort of ability to integrate into teams um, and to kind of both compete and collaborate with people across the world um, and um, sort of not be thrown when um, there are sort of different um, cultures, perspectives and languages in any kind of room or meeting. Um, and being aware of your own cultural bias as well. Um, so there were all sorts of things that just sort of came out of um, that, that feedback from people. Um, and I mean, some of it, obviously, you know, can, you can you can get the build these skills through other routes. Um, but um, it seemed that there were some sort of common themes around people who had got um, more than one language. Um, and then, you know, some of it's linked to, you know, being living abroad as well. Um but, yeah, fascinating. And I, I suppose, as you say, though, you know, you, you both you and Chris have used this, this word empathy, you know, it, it does make you appreciate and understand others more, doesn't it, when, particularly when, you you know, they're either living or working or studying in a country where 
the language that they might be studying in isn't their first language. Usually they are, obviously, they need to be proficient up to a certain level they're studying in it. But still, you know, you're surrounded by a different type of language and and it's um, and therefore, however good you are at a certain language, you, you, can, you can just empathise more with those students, can't you, in that kind of situation and appreciate potentially what they're they're going through not only in terms of what they're doing to produce what they need to produce for their studying but just in basic everyday life you know how they're managing to managing to interact and and I and I wonder whether um, Vicky and I mean obviously you've written a huge amount about international strategies for universities over the years particularly since you've been a um, an independent consultant um, and and just even thinking myself, you know, there aren't many strategies that explicitly refer to language teaching and learning within their strategies, are there? They very often refer to cultural awareness training and, you know, that kind of aspect. But very often it's, um, it's, <laughs> it's not necessarily things about what you might do yourself within the country that you're in and as, a, as a lecturer or something like that. It's how to, to help students to, you know, um, operate more smoothly, I suppose, within the country that they're working in um, and raise the awareness of, of those within that country to, to, to help them. But I don't recall there being a lot of institutions that actually put in their strategies about language teaching and learning. Has that been something that you've noticed over the years? Yes. I mean, uh, it's, it's something that really struck me when I was doing my, my global strategies research a couple of years ago and I looked at um, uh, strategies across the UK higher education sector and it struck me as a real blind spot that there were all these strategies that were talking about the importance of um, having an international outlook um, and um, you know building intercultural competence in students and that this would you know help them with their global employability and, and, and all of that and yet there was pretty much universal silence on the subject of language teaching within universities. Um, you know, I think when you drill down um, at, at the level of detail, there may be some universities where this is highlighted, um, but it seems to be the exception rather than the rule. And I think, you know, it's understandable. I mean, modern languages departments have been shrinking and shrinking at university level. Um, um, over the years uh, as a result of the sort of lack of um, A-level students coming on and wanting to study languages um, at university. But um, it, it does seem that, you know, when we talk about um, the importance of students being able to operate in a kind of multicultural, globally connected world, we're almost sort of asking them to build the skills with one arm tied behind their back if they've never actually been put in the situation of having to communicate in a language that isn't their own. Um, and I think we also fail to... Um, take full advantage of the fact that our universities are extremely multilingual places. We have mm. academic staff, professional service staff from all sorts of different countries with all sorts of linguistic backgrounds. We have students with all sorts of linguistic backgrounds. And it's somehow seen as a deficit rather than an asset. Um, so um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot more that could be done to... Um, sort of spark enthusiasm about the joy of language learning 
um, and the advantages of language learning. Because I, I suppose some of that in some institutions that might be done in sort of an ad hoc way, mightn't it? There might mm. be some activities that take place through the, you know, through the student support office, or you know, lots of through through maybe some of the um, student union groups, you know. But I, that that sort of systematic way in which you can use that richness of language and culture that we've all got across all of our respective institutions does seem to be something, doesn't it, that, that really doesn't exist. I mean, I can even remember when I first started in higher education and the university I was working in at the time, and this is a really, really simple example. I mean, as simple as you like, but, you know, we just had a buddying system for students with... Um, with students in the UK and there were little and it was back in back in the day because it was in the early 90s you know so and and we'd have these little strips of paper and you could tear off a little strip of paper with somebody's details on it that would say things like you know just like you know Chinese German whatever France French Italian uh, and then you buddied up with somebody and they'd they'd do some talking in their language you'd learn a bit of their language they'd learn you know, some more English, and it was a way of, of, you know, I suppose a very simple way, a little bit like we used to have in in schools, or like we all had, you know, pen pals, didn't we, or people that we mm. write to, and things like that. That kind of, when we didn't have the technology we've got now, um, which on the one hand can maybe give us, you know, so access to so much more than we would have had previously, um, that face-to-face -face interaction and the way in which we could help each other learn and that mutual benefit, therefore, that you could get sort of seems to have disappeared a little bit, doesn't it? So I don't know if those kind of very simple, you know, projects take place now. I don't know if you've heard of any types of pilot projects or anything for yeah. language learning. I mean, I think what, what one thing that um, I read about, I think, in 2019 in The Guardian was this wonderful pilot project. I mean, this ties in with the conversation we were having earlier about school level language learning and, and the sort of drop off in GCSE foreign language take up. Um, but it was it was a, um, a mentoring scheme amongst the two Sheffield universities, so University of Sheffield and Sheffield Hallam University, and the languages students at those institutions um, mentored, I think, year eight and year nine pupils in a pool of um, Sheffield secondary schools, um, and it was they were targeting those pupils who had said they had no interest in um, or they they were disinclined to take a language GCSE. Um, and they were targeting them at exactly the time when they were making their GCSE selections. And it was a five-week programme, on, some online, some face-to-face. -face. And as, as a result of that, there was, um, I think, uh, over, fifth, over half of the students who had been mentored decided they would go ahead and do a language GCSE. And there was a knock-on effect across the whole school, um, so that um, I think there was a 43% um, uplift in the number of students in any of the schools that were um, participating, undertaking a language GCSE, even if they hadn't been um, um, mentored themselves. Um, I think there was a similar, built on a similar project that happened in Wales. And I think, it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's quite simple. Um, it's not hugely expensive, um, but it didn't, it, it was it was government funded, I think, um, and it didn't get rolled out, um, even though I think the British Academy and others um, said, you know, this is a fantastic 
um, way to kind of, you know, increase that pipeline of um, students undertaking languages. You know, who knows, some of them might have gone on to do A-level and might have taken it further. Um, and, you know, it is about sort of opening their eyes um, and it's you know, from the perspective of somebody who obviously is passionate about languages because they decided to study it at undergraduate level, but they can kind of explain why that has been interesting, what, you know, that it's open doors to travel, that it's, you know, open doors to friendships in the other parts of the world um, and, you know, things that will resonate with those younger, mm. younger kids. It's funny, I was wondering, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, you know, about the... Um the lack of uptake of UK students to travel abroad um, during studies and, you know, whether there's some sort of correlation between just the way that sort of external view, um, because I mean, I mean, when I was in, in school and university, I mean, less so because I, I, I went to high school in Spain and, and therefore was in a, a different environment, but modern languages were a niche thing. Like somebody went to do modern languages at university and I mean, I did classics, which was already pretty, pretty niche. Um, <laughs> but people that did modern languages, you thought, what job are you going to get with modern? I mean, exactly the same as with classics. But you know that conversation was well. What what are you doing modern languages for? And when I was in Nottingham, Malaysia, when the 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 language department wanted to open up language degrees, they had to align them with a degree that was seen as in, seen as employable. So it was tourism plus mm. X. Um, and yet, it's it's again it's that sort of philosophical understanding of well, you don't really need languages other than English. Um, because the other ones are just if you're, you know, you're so inclined and, you know, oh, maybe your mother's French. Well, that explains why you, you know, you have to do or you want to do, etc. Um, I mean, I used to have this, this curious, curious reality when I was working on a branch campus that what we understood to be the cultural norm or the, the dominant culture, which when students went to the UK campus, it was like, well, of course, that's the UK. You know, they're expected to speak English. They're in a UK university, although, you know, UK being multicultural. But then even when the branch campus is like, well, now you're trying to replicate. So now everybody has to speak English here and this has to be the dominant culture, despite the fact that you're in another place for a reason, you know, with the access and everything that that, that means. Um, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting way of, particularly from a UK perspective, there's something in our psyche, you know, that this is how we interpret or, or internalize languages and, and travel. And it's because it's been the dominant language for so long, and as Judith said at the beginning, it continues to be so. Well, we don't need to learn anything. Obviously, we're in a we're in a digital room here where we all speak more than one language. So you know, we're I think we're on the other side of the fence. But I, I find it fascinating that we don't that we keep the, we, this keeps being perpetuated, despite as you said the fact that actually you are massively more employable with another language. Like that's already an enormous advantage. Ignore the cultural, philosophical, you know, social, all the stuff we've been talking about. If you're just looking at the pure bottom line, you are more employable. It's, it's a better thing to be. Um, and yet it's still seen in many areas as a, eh, just yell louder. People will understand you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just think, an attractive add-on, isn't it? Yeah, to say yeah. to it, and I and I wonder whether, and, and I'll come to you in a second, then, Vicky. But you know, I, I wonder whether it, universities, schools, as well, though, just aren't being brave enough in saying that, in keeping those languages there, in pushing that out, and saying, you know, yes, you, we can see that if you are studying on this program in business management or this program, computer science, you can probably see the kind of 
job you might be going to get in the future, even directly after you've graduated from, from university. But you know what? If you do languages or if you do classics or anything, you can actually open up the, the whole world to doing so much more. Um, but that's a harder sell, isn't it, for people? You have to actually be able to articulate and convince people that yeah. that is the case. And as, and and as Vicky said, if the numbers aren't there... And takes more time. Exactly. And as Vicky said, if the numbers aren't there, the reality appears to be nobody's interested in it. But if we start yeah. earlier also... and earlier, maybe, yeah. Sorry, Vicky, sorry. I was just say, there's, there's another angle to this, which is also, you know, the, the whole um, sort of shifting um, axis, um, uh, geopolitical axis around, you know, sort of uh, move towards Asia being very central and Asian languages being um, much more um, useful. Um, and... Uh, I think there was there'd be various pieces of re research and reports kind of saying that, you know, particularly in the UK, you know, we need to orientate ourselves more towards um, Asia. Um, I mean, China in particular, but um, to, to recognize that, um, you know, we just need to know more about that part of the world. They're going to be so economically dom dominant, um, you know, in t terms of um uh, kind of, you know, where, where innovations are coming from and so on. Um, and, I mean, interestingly, I think during the pandemic, um, the languages that were most, where, where there was most growth in take up on the Duolingo platform were um, Hindi, Korean, Japanese, Turkish and Mandarin Chinese. Uh, so, you know, all um, Asian languages. Um, and, um, so, that, you know, that there's obviously something, you know, in the ether, people are, are recognising that, um, you know, there's, there's a sort of um, affinity, I think, um, with um, sort of certain cultures, Japanese culture, Korean culture amongst young people. Um, so, you know, perhaps, you know, we need to kind of use that as a hook um, and um, link um, language learning of you know maybe maybe it's not just the sort of French German Spanish maybe mm. it's um, hooking into um, people's interests and the direction of travel um, when it comes to um, employment opportunities and saying you know there's a whole load of other languages out there yeah yeah which I mean you'd, you'd figure as you said particularly during the pandemic where you know we were watching things more more frequently perhaps than we might have had time before you'd assume that with the the massive streaming platforms and the access to different material you know that's a very good as you say entry point to saying well i i you know i watch squid games i might be interested to try and learn a little bit of you know whatever it might be and and, and i think it's uh it's interesting isn't it because it's then seen as um as you made the point with duolingo it's a game you know if you you can learn language and it's fun um i've learned languages in a in a country not of the language I was learning um, in a school setting, and that was difficult. I've learned languages in the country of the language, and that was as you know immersive and difficult, but pretty quick um, to to sink or swim. And I'm now learning languages on an app, which is amusing, <laughs> to, to probably to to say the least. Um, and and yeah, I think whatever the entry point is, if we can encourage that, um, I don't actually have the experience of you having learnt. French through German. My closest is I learned ancient Greek from a professor with a very thick Scottish accent. That was about um, 
And I remember one of the strangest things I've ever seen was Mike Myers, the actor comedian, on, an, on a talk show. And he said, oh, one of my special skills, I can speak French. He's Canadian. I can speak French with a Scottish accent. And then he did it. <laughs> And my brain almost exploded. It was very, very hard to understand how he could isolate those two bits together. Yeah, very clever. Well, yeah, my, my, the, probably the, one of the biggest compliments I've ever been paid was when I was, it was during my year abroad in France as a student, um, I visited, I went across to Germany, to North Germany uh, to visit. So I was speaking German and, and a German native speaker said to me, oh, um, which part of France are you from? And I say, oh, I'm speaking German in a French accent, not an English accent. Amazing. <laughs> yes, that's progress. Yeah. <laughs> I was equally impressed that you managed to learn chemistry. In German <laughs> well, not well. very well. Well, well. You know, I failed chemistry spectacularly in English, so I just wonder what levels that I would have managed to plummet down to if I'd had to learn in German as well. <laughs> um, I wonder whether we could start to, to, to round this off with, with talking maybe a little bit more of, about AI and, you know, and, um, and we're sort of drifting into that anyway, I suppose, but probably in a more positive way, how can technology sort of help us learn languages and, and, and the narrative around this uh, in some areas is that actually this could be something that is not beneficial to learn language, that is going to to hinder it rather than help it. And and it reminds me a little bit of the whole, you know, rhetoric that there was around video recorders when they came in in the eighties or whenever it was when ordinary people were able to access them and, and certainly when I was in schools at that time, people were saying, Well, that's it, there'll be no more teachers, we won't be needed anymore, they'll just put a video recorder or a computer at the uh, in the classroom and that's the end of us which of course hasn't happened and i suspect won't happen with ai either but i wonder if specifically you've got any thoughts around the sort of ai space and languages yeah i mean i think you know i think it can be really um helpful i i, I um because i think there's you know, for things like translation, um, it, you know, it has already revolutionised our ability to just sort of, um, you know, read a menu in another country if you're on holiday and and you, you want to double check what it what is actually, you know, <laughs> what you're eating. Um, <laughs> um, but um, and I, but I think you know, in a more sophisticated way, as it develops, um, it's you know, means that when you are learning a language, the um, chatbot or whatever can um, tailor its responses to your level, your competency, um, even to your kind of interests so that it makes it even more interesting for you. So it's not, it's absolutely sort of personalised rather than one size fits all approach to language learning. So I think that could be hugely beneficial, but I think that it it doesn't mean that you don't need um, traditional forms of language learning as well, because it doesn't have that human element. Um, I think, I mean, again, it was something my son said um, about Duolingo was that it's, it, you, it, because you're talking back to um, a bot, you're less inhibited than if you're talking to a human being. Um, so it can kind of, you know, get you up to speed um, and then, you know, you can practice in a, in a very safe environment um, and then you can build up confidence to do it in a kind of real life situation. Um, but, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you go back to all the skills um, that um, uh, we talked about that, can, that sort of come through language learning, a lot of them are very much about human interaction. And yeah. so I think that the AI element will never be able to replace the human interaction side of it. So I wonder, Vicky, then, as we, as we round off today, whether there's one final sort of piece of advice that you could give us as people that are working in higher education as to what we might do to help the, the, the state that languages seem to find themselves in now? How, how might it help the situation that we're in? Oh, there's a, <laughs> there's a question. Um, I mean, I, I think, it, you know, it, it has to go back to um, supporting um, people at the school level. Um, and, and, you know, whether it is international students going out into primary schools and just sort of sparking interest in other countries and cultures um, or, you know, sort of out, outreach kind of activity or whether it's, you know, uh, in secondary schools, um, the, the sort of mentoring um, at that time when students are picking their GCSE subjects. Um, I, I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, it, it really would require a kind of national programme to do this and the will to roll that out. Um, but there are probably things that universities can do individually. And I think it brings together the whole global engagement agenda and the civic engagement agenda, because you're being a good mm. citizen in your own locality if you are reaching out um, to schools um, and um, uh, building in sort of enriching them um, through that kind of insight into other, other cultures and other languages. That's a brilliant point, uh, Vicky, yes, and maybe one we'll end on here, but we'll start on in our next podcast with you, that bringing together that civic and global agenda through, uh, through language teaching and learning, I think would be excellent. Thank you so much for joining us again, Vicky. We're very grateful. And it's been excellent to talk to you about all of these different things, you know, that we might be doing within the languages space and language education. And fingers crossed that we'll be we'll be talking about this in many years to come, and that languages will have researched. <laughs> It'd be an absolute pleasure, as always. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks much. Thank so you so much. Thank you. Bye, Vicky. Bye bye.